The issue for moose is that this allows for very high infestation levels to be reached on a single animal, where sometimes you can see a moose that has, have winter tick infestations up to about 70,000 ticks or more. So if you try to imagine this many ticks feeding on a single animal, just think about how much blood that animal will lose. That's Pauline Kamath, an assistant professor of animal health, talking about the devastating effect that winter ticks can have on moose. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question podcast from the University of Maine. It's hard to think of an icon that is more associated with the state of Maine than a wild moose. Lobsters may be in that conversation, but there's something about a moose that just draws people in. Maybe it's the combination of its immense size and stature combined with an almost goofy look. Over the past century, this majestic creature has made a comeback. The population dipped to an estimated 2,000 animals around 1900. Today, Maine is estimated to have 60 to 80,000 moose roaming around in the woods, the highest population in the lower 48. There is a significant threat to Maine state animal, however. The winter or moose tick has been on the rise in recent years. It's highly adapted to its namesake host and growing in numbers due in part to warming temperatures and less severe winters. The tick can drain the animal of blood. It can cause severe itching that leads moose to rub much of their fur off creating what some are calling ghost moose. This effect is particularly devastating for young calves. When they're infested like this, many simply don't have the energy and strength to survive the winter. Pauline Kamath is studying this phenomenon, how it's trending, and what it might mean for Maine's moose. Her work is funded by the Morris Animal Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. We talked to her about working with this symbol of Maine, and how she's collaborating with state wildlife officials and getting input from hunters and the general public. Pauline, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm curious at how you arrived at this spot that you are studying these creatures in this way and looking at these issues that, that you've decided to tackle. So maybe you can break down what it is exactly that you do at its most basic level. What do you study and how were you drawn into doing this work and being at this spot right now? Sure. Well, I study the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases and wildlife, as well as domestic animals. So at that interface, um, in particular, I'm interested in understanding what factors increase disease risk and spread uh, within wildlife, as well as between those wild and domestic animals. So I'm interested also in understanding how these parasite infections affect health, the health of their animal host, as well as how infectious parasites or pathogens and that the, their hosts evolve or change genetically in response to one another. So how I got here, I guess in my undergraduate, I was actually really fascinated with infectious diseases and genetics and human, humans, and so originally intended to go to med school and pursue a career in research on um, one or the other on um, genetics and human diseases. However, through coursework, I was introduced to the fields of ecology and evolution, and we're really drawn to the more complex questions and sort of the, all the messiness of it all, trying to disentangle all of these possible factors that influence disease outcomes in a natural environment, so outside of the like outside of a lab. And so this eventually led me to pursue a PhD in wildlife disease ecology um, at UC Berkeley. 
and where I did a project that was focused on a bacterial disease called anthrax in wild herbivore populations in southern Africa. So from there, I have now focused on a number of diseases or parasites that affect birds and mammals, and some of these projects are international, where others are like in Maine, focused here in Maine, like the moose winter tick problem. You mentioned that these are messy problems. Are, are, is that part of the allure, that complexity that, you know, it, it's a multi-layered, it's not, you're gonna, not com- gonna come up with the answer next Tuesday kind of thing, right? Exactly. Every time I do a research project or try to answer a particular question, I end up having more questions <laughs> because there are so many factors that actually influence infectious di- disease dynamics in natural systems or in, in reality. In terms of the moose study you are doing, maybe you can just give us the the cocktail napkin pitch. Paint the big picture for us in terms of ticks in Maine and beyond and how that sort of uh, interplays with moose. Uh, What are we looking at here? In moose, uh, the tick that's causing the problem is called the winter tick, and some may call it the moose tick. So this tick is a very different species of tick that is adapted specifically to moose. Um, Its life cycle is also really different in that Um, Some ticks uh, need multiple hosts to complete their life cycle, but the winter tick just needs one host. So it spends its whole life on typically a moose and then falls off into the environment um, after when it gets to the stage of having to lay eggs. And so the issue for moose is that this allows for very high infestation levels to be reached on a single animal where sometimes you can see a moose that has have winter tick infestations up to about 70,000 ticks or more sometimes um, yeah higher so if you try to imagine this many ticks feeding on a single animal just think about how much blood that animal will lose so for animals trying to survive the winter with limited food resources, when they lose this much blood, this can actually lead to death, and particularly in those young moose calves. So what we've been, what's been seen over the past decade are these increase in epizootics, and what I mean by that is the loss of over um, a certain percentage, I think it was 50% of calves due to winter ticks during a winter. And so this frequency of these up winter tick epizootics has been increasing over this time period, and overall this loss of calves can mean a decreased productivity in the moose population. So what we're trying to focus on is um, trying to understand the effects of these winter ticks on survival and long-term population trends in the moose population, but also considering some of the other factors uh, that are involved. What are the trend lines in terms of the tick population? Are they on the rise? Is that situation changing quickly? If we think about ticks in general, um, so we know that tick populations just generally, and tick-borne diseases in Maine and the United States in in general are increasing and spreading uh, geographically. So for example, like the black-legged tick, which is the vector for the Lyme disease bacteria, have expanded along the coast in the northeasterly direction and appear to be increasing in abundance and distribution, possibly due to changes in climate. Similar trends are expected for other ticks. We don't have a good idea of winter ticks and how they're changing in response to climate, but any kind of tick that requires an environmental stage where they have to survive in the environment is going to be susceptible to climate, changes in climate. But also they're they're going to respond to how the, the host, their animal host, responds to climate. So they need both the host and to be able to survive in the environment. 
And so I don't have a good answer for you about how quickly that situation is changing, except for what we are seeing in terms of its effects on the moose population, which does seem to imply that it is getting worse quickly. Just observing this, it, it must be horrifying in a way to see these animals suffer in this way and just have their, their blood drained out of them. And basically that's what's happening. Yeah, certainly. One of the things we've heard about in, in terms of all of this is the concept of ghost moose, which are found in the woods and obviously are not in very good shape and have suffered greatly. Can you talk about that? So it's a moose that has had these severe winter tick infestations. And because of those infestations, they've been lost a lot of their fur. They look really mangy. They're sometimes like a little thin. Because of the loss of fur, they almost look white, white like a ghost. That just refers to... You know, that's, it has a severe effect on not just the loss, like the winter ticks themselves are not just causing a, a huge amount of blood loss, but they're also reducing their winter coat, you know, during the winter when they need, they have higher energetic demands. And so if you imagine not just that, I think they, it alters their behavior. So when you have a bunch of winter ticks on you, the, the moose are actually like scratching and they're spending more time doing that versus looking for food. And so the combination of that blood loss, um, along with, you know, the increased energy demands works together to have pretty negative effects on the animal. I know you're a scientist and you have to remain neutral, but just on a humane level that you have to look at that and think what a, what a horrible way to go. It's terrible to see. So hopefully we can figure out the problem and try to reduce these populations of winter ticks and their effects on moose. But yeah, it's terrible. Are we looking at a multi-pronged problem when it comes to ticks and their effect on moose? Uh, They're causing mortality in young moose, but they're also allowing other diseases and parasites to to gain a foothold, so to speak? This is a question that we are interested in tackling. Much of the prior research has focused on effects of winter ticks themselves on moose, which are indeed a key factor that, um, like a major factor in moose health. But what we're also understanding is the interaction of these other parasite infections. So what we call co-infections or multiple infections of different parasites on the health outcome of moose. So in particular, there's a large proportion of moose in Maine that are infected with this bacteria anaplasma, which infects the blood cells of its host, and this is an area that we've been focusing on, and we have hypothesized that for moose that are already suffering from blood loss due to winter ticks, infection of its remaining blood cells with this parasite might further decrease probability of survival for the animal. And in preliminary work suggests that it might. Um, So we are also interested in trying to understand the interactions with a couple other parasites in moose, such as um, the tapeworm, echinococcus, uh, brain worm, or also known as meningeal worm, and uh, lung worm, for example. How is the moose population doing with all this going on? Is it is it holding steady? What are the trend lines look like there? So in general, um, Maine moose population is pretty large. It's the mo- most dense population in the um, lower 48 states. So generally, they're doing well in that regard. Uh, the idea that biologists are kind of going with here is they think that um, the high population density has actually allowed for the support of some of these um, winter tick populations to perpetuate that in the landscape. And so 
there has been recently more in the last like five, 10 years or so, they've been noticing some declines in population due to that. The concern is thinking about if that continues with these high population, high populations of winter tick affecting moose, that we might see some more dramatic declines. And there are other populations um, that have winter ticks that have seen declines in response to that, like in, in New Hampshire, for example. Tell us how you go about doing your work. This is a large animal that probably is uncooperative in terms of dealing with people and such. So h- how do you do what you do? I work with a pretty large team of researchers, both here at UMaine on, uh, and the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, as well as we have collaborators at some other institutions, including University of New Hampshire, that have done a lot of previous research on winter ticks and moose. They actually, with the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, had conducted a long-term survival study since about 2014 and are now continuing to do some work to look at the effects of increasing hunting pressure on moose densities and parasite prevalence. So by working with the state agency that's already got this large project underway, we are currently obtaining biological samples, including blood and tick or tissue and ticks as well from both the live captures. Um, and now we're also working in collaboration or in cooperation with hunters during the fall moose hunt. And with these sam- samples that we're getting from both the hunter harvest and the live capture, we are performing um, diagnostic tests in the labs. So we take those samples back to the lab and we determine pathogen infection status. And then we use this other data that has been collected during, you know, during the sampling, including data on individual age, sex, weight, location to try to bring in these other factors that can explain that individual variation in parasite infections. And then so together modeling that to understand how they might ultimately influence survival and the population trajectory. So you're working with Maine wildlife officials from IF&W. Tell us what role they play. I mean, to get samples from a live moose, that must be quite a quite a thing to, to witness. But they have people that that's what they do, right? The Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, it's led by moose biologist Lee Cantar, have been capturing and collaring moose for many years. And they actually hire a professional helicopter team to do this as accessing moose in the winter and the remote Northwoods um, can be really challenging. And they are primarily focused on capturing like moose calves as that's uh, the demographic part of that uh, that is most affected by winter ticks. So they collar and track these animals and determine whether they'll survive the winter. And then, yeah, I really enjoy working with the state agency folks as it really challenges me to sort of think about relevant questions that have an application to the wildlife management needs and address those needs. Maybe talk a little bit about some factors that might make moose more likely to survive. Can the effect of ticks be managed or mitigated? You talked about the density and how that plays into it. So are there other things that might help the moose make it through the winter? Well, that's a tough one. So in in terms of managing the effects of winter ticks on moose, one option would be to disrupt the, really the only option would be to disrupt the winter tick population cycle. So previous work has found that, you know, the cha- that changes in tick abundance are re- related to that interaction between moose density and the onset length and length of winter. 
as well as sort of the summer conditions that affect the ticks and the survive the sick tick survival in the environment. But because we can't really manage ticks easily through changing climate, the only option would be to manage their populations by reducing moose, the moose population density, which I mentioned already. By doing this, you know, Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife this year just offered an adaptive hunt, which just happened. The idea of this is to see if moose den- reducing moose density could reduce winter ticks and then increase calf survival over time. And so they're doing this a comparative study that looks at one area where they've done this adaptive hunt um, in comparison to an area next to it that has not had the adaptive hunt. And so that hopefully will give us some, answer some questions about whether, you know, we can, they can manage the disease in this way by trying to manage the density of the moose population itself. You talked about working with hunters. Can you just talk about basically involving citizens and the public in helping to do the science of this? We just started this uh, effort to, to get additional samples from hunters across the state of Maine, mostly because we had been had data only from one core area in um, the Northwoods area of Maine. And so we wanted to get a better sense of the distribution of some of these parasites and prevalence and see how it varies across the state. One of my grad students is leading this effort, Elena Woods, who put like a massive amount of time into organizing, putting together sampling kits with instructions and selecting hunters that were um, interested, I believe over 500 or so across the state. Um, and she got all these kits out and then has not only has had to put all that effort on in on the front end but then had to coordinate with the agency biologists and involved with the hunt and the registration station owners and the hunters themselves to get get those samples back and get them in good quality in good shape for her for her to actually analyze them in terms of detecting parasites the hunters bring their moose into these stations because they're required to register their moose after the hunt and so we just ask them to drop off their kits and they're basically just the stations are like spread out across the state so i can see how it can be a challenge to get them all back but it's amazing that there's been an incredible response from the hunters, they're very interested in the study. They've really, really been excited. A lot of them have been excited about collecting and helping out, and so that's been really fun. What is it like to work with this iconic creature? Why do you think people are drawn to moose? Moose are just really a fantastic animal to work with. Just, I mean, you just look at them. Their physical stature is both very odd and impressive. Particularly, that you know, they have long muzzles and they flap of skin under their throat, and they're size and their huge antlers. So moose are also, um, not just the way they look, but they're very special as a symbol of Maine. So as Maine's official state animal, and they're extremely important to indigenous communities as part of their cultural, cultural heritage. I think what also makes them kind of interesting is that they're like this solitary, elusive animal that makes them a bit more mysterious. So it's always exciting to even just see one. So you feel really lucky if you get to you get to see one because they're they you don't get that op- opportunity very often, right? Are you drawn to them the more you work with them? Uh, do you find them more fascinating as as this work continues? The more I think about and study an animal, I get more and more interested in learning more about it for sure. Talk about how this work fits into the larger body of work done in your department and in, in animal and veterinary science here at UMaine. There's a lot of people working on a lot of different things, but how does this fit into the big picture there? 
Uh, you mean I'm also part of a group that is involved with this initiative, the One Health Initiative. And so just to explain what that is, One Health is this concept that the health of humans is really connected to that, the health of domestic animals and wildlife, as well as the health of the environment. So there are a number of faculty uh, in my program or my department, as well as across the whole university that are working as, as part of this initiative. And so trying to make these connections between um, environmental, agricultural, and public health. For example, I'm also involved in another collaborative project with the faculty in my department, and both the School of Food and Agriculture and the School of Biology and Ecology, looking at the effects of climates on microbes and small rodents and how these vary off and on farm environments. So bringing it back to where they may pose a risk to domestic livestock. So my research does try to make those links between the agricultural, veterinary, medical, and public health sectors, and also emphasizes like the importance of considering those links. As we look out into the future, obviously with climate change and the way tick populations are uh, trending, that looks to be a challenge. But maybe talk a little bit about what you think the future holds for moose and some of the trends you're studying. Where, where do you think we'll we are headed with all of this. We hope the future is promising for moose. Maine does have a very large population, which we hope will be adaptable to environmental change. So hopefully by modeling these population impacts, we can aim to understand like the, the long-term viability of the population. And we are also currently planning a genome-wide association study that will hopefully uh, be able to identify like genetic variability in as a risk factor that could be informative for understanding that adaptive potential uh, of the population into the future. And so I, my hope is that, that they have, there's a very good outlook for moose in the future and that we are able to come up with solutions because there's always a solution, hopefully, to this problem. Fascinating, challenging work, and thanks for uh, sharing it with us. Yes, of course, no problem. It's great speaking to you, Ron. Thanks for joining us. There's plenty of places to go if you want to hear other episodes or subscribe to our series. Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Audible and Amazon Music. Questions or comments? Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ryan Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.